1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for New Books in Japanese Studies, a member of the New Books Network. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Ron Zweigenberg about his book, Nuclear Minds, Cold War Psychological Science and the Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nuclear Minds, which is out from the University of Chicago Press in 2023, explores early efforts by the American military, by psychiatrists, psychologists, and social scientists to understand the effects of the atomic bombings on the minds of those who had survived. In positioning the book as a prehistory of PTSD, Zweigenberg draws attention to the historicity of the idea of psychological trauma. Before the concept was institutionalized in the DSM in 1980, Nuclear Minds shows that the ideological temperament of Cold War science and the gendered nature of scientific knowledge production versus psychological care were among the factors that led scientists and researchers to minimize, deny, or simply not register as meaningful the suffering of survivors. But also that without our contemporary concept of trauma, or even the category of survivor, the experience of the affected did not always clearly conform to our contemporary expectations. Okay uh Dr. Zweigenberg, welcome to the podcast. Uh I know that this is a little bit of a surreal experience being on the other side of the mic for a change. Uh, and uh, also uh, I think our many of our listeners know by now that we 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 are more than Dr. Zweigenberg, Dr. Hobson uh acquaintances. Um so I'll, I'll I'll be calling you Ron throughout. But um I have a little bit of an idea about uh, uh how this book came about uh cuz I was privileged to to be part of some of the early uh, talks about it but i'd love it if you could tell your audience about uh, how this book project came about and how it fits into uh what you've been doing sort of longer term in your career
0: hi nathan thank you for having me and again uh and yes this is uh it's a bit odd to be on the other side uh but fun as well uh, so as you know uh, so uh, me- so as you know, because you were there when I, when we did a postdoc after I finished my first book, Hiroshima book, and we were in post and I was in postdoc at Yale uh, when you were there as well. Uh, and uh, actually, I, there was one chapter I wrote on the, the Hiroshima book, the first one, Hiroshima. Uh, it's about the memory of Hiroshima, but memory, culture, memories. It's a memory studies book, and there was one chapter there on uh, on uh, on P- PTSD, on post traumatic stress, uh, stress syndrome and the origin of it in the research of uh, Robert J. Lifton. Um, Robert J. Lifton, uh, who is a Jewish American psychiatrist who visited Hiroshima in 1960, 1962, and met with Hiroshima psychologist and did research on Hiroshima survivors that led eventually to so what I argue in the book. Uh, well, both books, right? Uh, one of the, the main avenues through which uh, we have the category of PTSD, Lifton set on the committee that uh, categorized uh, that led to the insertion of PTSD into the DSM, the, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, the manual of the American Psychiatric Association, which is the start, the official start of PTSD in 1980. Um, I wrote a chapter on it, uh, but I wasn't quite happy with the chapter as uh, we all are uh, when we write books. We're never quite done with anything we do. Uh, uh, and i wanted to get more into what japanese uh, psychologists did uh, there was one meeting that i also started this book with um on which i found ample uh, documentation from lifton in his papers he wrote a long letter to his le- to to a friend about this uh where he talk about meeting a japanese professor uh hiroshima university professor kubo shitoshi and this meeting really fascinated me. You know, like I really wanted to be a fly on the wall because the meeting, Lifton himself said in letter and then also in his memoir, this was kind of the start of his project. This is why he stayed in Hiroshima. This is why he did this. I didn't know much about Kubo and I was very unhappy with this idea of, you know, Lifton as someone's coming from outside, uh, an American coming to Hiroshima and basically, and again, this not what nobody did He wouldn't say he did it showing the, na- the natives, big scare quotes, right, how to do it right. This is, I know I had a friend called the Karate Kid Syndrome, right? Like Tom Cruise teaching the samurai how to be a good samurai, right? Like the white savior coming in and it's very, very, uh, I wasn't happy with this story, right? And this is not what happened. I'm not saying what happened, but it, it might look like this. So I went to look into uh, what Kubishitoshi did and what the Japanese uh, psychiatrist uh, and psychologist did. And I thought I'll write an article, which I submitted to one of the most prestigious journals (laughs) uh, in the field, but it didn't work out, right? It it took a long time and a lot of revisions and a lot of back and forth. And then it didn't work out. And then I was like, that's it. (laughs) I tried, didn't work, got rejected. But uh, so I put it aside. Went and wrote another book uh, with Oleg Benish about castles, something totally different. And just managed, just went back to this couple of years afterwards um, and started digging more, uh, digging more into Kubo Toshi Wrote a couple of articles. Then I realized that there is something there, something more. Um, there is much more before the Kubo Toshi meeting in 19- 1962 that uh, needs to be looked at because there. Is something about this uh, that didn't quite work for me? It wasn't what I was hoping or expecting to see. And, you know, this curiosity, this uh, interest in how did people talk about mental damage, right? Before we had the categories that we have now, this is what really kind of the big drive that led me to write this book, really trying to look at. and I know I'm gonna to jump to the gun because it's your first question. Like what's the pre prehistory of PTSD, right?
1: Yeah, no, I so this is uh thank you for setting up the question, right? Because you you've uh the way you sort of laid this out in the book is on the one hand, it is a prehistory of of PTSD, right? And you started to talk a little bit about how Lifton uh is you know proximally uh, very involved with creating that as a psychiatric um, d- defined syndrome. But at the same time, you know, the, the book actually isn't about that part of the story so much as about what leads up to his meeting uh, with Kubo in 1962. Um, so yeah I mean if you want to talk a little bit more about the prehistory of P- PTSD part that's fine uh if not we can go into um, some of the arguments that you're laying out in your introduction uh about uh what leads up to that 1962 meeting and sort of what's happening between 1945 and 1962 when there isn't really uh that you know a, a well defined way of thinking about trauma as the framework for thinking about uh what happened. You know, the the Victim versus survivor versus trauma, all these different ideas that we have now about how to define um, what happened in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, not, not least, but in other places as well.
0: Yeah, I think for the argument, uh, and I think we can maybe uh, talk about uh, both at the same time, because the, the idea of a prehistory PTSD is is very important for this book, uh, because so much of our understanding of what happened um in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Holocaust and all and the uh, events of, of mass death mass strategy all around us is so colored by our idea of trauma right what uh there's a book the scene and someone did called the empire of trauma these are two French authors I forgot the second one name is how and talks about how trauma basically took over all of our categories that really completely dominate our understanding of what happened how people react to, to, to mass violence, how people react to tragedy, how people should behave, uh, the medicalization of, um, of the top medicalization of medicalization of this is really overwhelming to an extent that if I tell people that something like that, and this one, my main argument is people weren't traumatized per se, right? which I can't stress enough, it doesn't mean they didn't suffer, right? It just means, and that's what I argue in the books. the main argument of the book actually is that trauma was a marginal category. People did not, not only that the researchers didn't think about this as trauma, and I'm going to talk about it in a couple of minutes, uh, but people probably, and I say probably because we have no, no way of knowing. Um, we have ways of knowing, but it, it's difficult. Um, maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. Uh, didn't experience uh, it as trauma. Uh, uh, what you have with trauma is what's the philosopher of science Ian Hawking Hawking said called a looping effect. Uh which means once you have new categories, you have new ways of experiencing, right? So before categories exist, people didn't experience it the same way, right? So if we say that people were traumatized with what happened in 1945, we basically project our own understanding. As Vanya Gotterman was a historian of of medicine german historian of medicine um who wrote a very uh very important book on the reactions of wehrmacht of german soldiers world War ii and she went to look in the case files and she couldn't find trauma and she said using trauma is basically putting the very diverse and very different reaction of people at that time into a straight maybe she called something but into a straight jacket of of it's kind of 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 diagnostical history, and this was also my experience. I went back into the files. I went back into the research uh, into what happened before 1945, right? And I couldn't find trauma. So this the book started actually trying to look at what happened. <laughs> you know, the whole time that the more and more I kind of dived into those 17 years, years, uh, and a little bit before, a little bit after, but mostly those 17 years and and try to look at what people did how did they reacted before this history began the history that I talk about in my first book about how Hiroshima and also in this a little bit how Hiroshima with the Holocaust and Vietnam how do people work and all this actually came together and produced what we now know as PTSD what happened before so this is the the main argument and this is also the crux of the book how do people react and what I found was very very different uh reactions to very different reactions to to the disaster well, the disaster to to the nuclear attack in 1945
1: yeah i think i think this is you know worth emphasizing um that you're you're sort of intervening against a kind of um you know perhaps unwitting but a sort of presentism right a, a sense that well people you know that that failure to understand that people in the past were different right that you know the past is a different country if you want to you know is a foreign country or whatever but it's you know it, it it's interesting because it seemed to me that this is part of in you know, that looping effect that you described is part of a more general sense um about uh genesis amnesia right that you, you sort of pass a point of no return at which it's impossible to fully recover the the sort of the sense memory um the the Interior emic experience of what it was like before we had a new way to talk about things, a new way to experience things, um, and so in that sense, I think that the, you know it's a it's a book that speaks you know with a single case study about PTSD and trauma to a much larger set of historical phenomena and things that we struggle with as historians as well. Of thinking course, about
0: that. yeah, I mean you can say the same thing about feminist history, about history of a point of view of of minorities and race uh, before we had our racial theories. I'm not saying. At all. And I can, again, I'm the same way that I'm not saying people didn't suffer. Of course, people suffer. Of course, people, if you talk about race and, and discrimination on gender, of course, people felt, of course, uh, you know discrimination and those things that we use our categories now to look at the past it doesn't mean phenomenas did not exist, but they were different people experienced different people had different expectations. And, um, different expectations and as historians we have to be very very careful and sensitive to this uh, like one example that also bring the book but also from my personal experience i bring um that's more about being a survivor but but also about trump uh i bring a quote from a holocaust survivor a second generation like someone whose, whose parents was were holocaust survivors uh, I, again i forgot the name um it's an introduction i think um, and she said, "My parents weren't traumatized. They weren't. They weren't survivors per se. Everybody around them, they had a tough time, and it was over, and that's it. Everybody suffered. Everybody, no, they didn't think about themselves as survivors. They didn't think about themselves as special. Everybody around them. And I saw the same thing in my own family. Uh, my grandparents, Holocaust survivors. I grew up with them, and uh, no one ever. We didn't have this. Also, when we were." younger I don't think we had the the language right I don't think we we didn't go to our school counselor and talked about uh uh, you know trauma or ADHD or any of those things right so it's coming from this place of you know trying to talk about people in the terms that they're used at the time in their own terms in a way so and again something I still struggle on I do write about trauma here I do call it nuclear trauma but I, I and this is something also Paul learn. A lot of people write about uh, about trauma. So the trauma, you have to be very very careful with your application of this. Um, yeah, So if they didn't use trauma, what did they use? <laughs> right. So maybe I mean, this is if we can go beyond. Like why? What did they use? And what I did find is that there's a whole range of categories that they were, uh, they were used, uh, but I kind of reuse. But what? really kind of bring those, all of those categories and ways of looking at it together is the issue that psychologist researchers by and large were not concerned with the victims, right? So I make a couple of arguments in the book, right? The trauma is one of them, right? So we can move beyond. And like the second one is that if you look, and this is why I'm doing it at 17 years. If you look at beyond trauma, what you find is That the Kubo Lifton meeting was not by far the first time that people from the US and Japanese researchers met in Hiroshima, right? The first meeting of psychological researchers, uh, and I say it, and not just psychologists, because psychologists, psychiatrists, sociologists, people use psychological categories, right? Uh, Was almost immediately after the bomb, the first time that they came to Hiroshima, and I found there is this surreal scene in, in November, December, nineteen forty-five, a couple of weeks after the bomb, where you have researchers with the United States Strategic Bombing Survey (USSBS) running around Hiroshima in gyps with clipboards, asking people how they felt about the bomb.
1: It's utterly surreal to to you have photographs and uh, you these passages in the book. It's completely bizarre.
0: It still blows my mind, really. I mean, one of those people we're gonna talk about later, Scotty Scotti Matsumoto was there. Like, I really got. I mean, I talked to his family. I got his papers. I, I read uh, his reports and, and letters, and, and I just, again, the past is out of country. Like, it is it's a cliche, but you really, really don't understand how it made sense. You know, you drop a weapon of mass destruction in a city, and then you walk around ask people how they felt about it. <laughs> so this is kind of like the second kind of point here right of of like it really got me into this like how was it possible so to go back to the argument right it's possible because you can think about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in isolation from the longer history of bombing civilians okay and the reason I'm saying it is because if you look at the psychological research on the bombing, you'll see the psychological research was not about dealing with the victim and healing the victim of bombing, but from the American, British, German, the bombing side, right? Trying to help the bombers do a better job with destroying the psychological defenses of the victims. And this was my blind spot before, because I went out and looked for psychological research on, on hibaksha, on survivors, right? Bakcha is uh, the way the, in Japanese, uh, survivors are about, right? Couldn't find anything. <laughs> I mean, I found a couple of things, uh, and we can we talk about it later, but not as much as I was expecting, right? But if you try to look at what people did on the other side, right, and you see there's a longer trajectory of psychologists and researchers working with air forces, and this is not just the US, but most of the US, because the US was in the sanctification of, of this as, as an Anglo American uh, bombing and, and bombing research, not just psychology. Also, we like the invention of napalm and using math, uh, and computers, uh, computerized models, uh, to calculate bomb tonnage and stuff like this. I mean, um, you know, David Fedman, do a really good work on this, uh, in their new book. Um, it's, it's really an Anglo-American thing. And there I found the researchers there, there I found this research, uh, and this is why it makes sense for them to ask those questions on Hiroshima, because what they're after is trying to see if we did a good job, if did we really break them a lot of those people, did the bombing work, right? And there you found this, you found uh, almost most of the research before 1962.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think to to be fair to you here, I think there's no reason you could have really expected to be expected to to have gone looking for a. a you know, customer satisfaction survey about the atomic bombing, that wouldn't have been the the intuitive uh, place to go looking for something the first time around. So it is sort of interesting that that's, you know, in a sense, um, it, I mean, the customers are not the people who were bombed, but they're the ones who are being surveyed. The customers are, as you you know, point out the bombers. Um, but there's this sort of status, you know, there's this sort of survey that's going on, which is really, um, yeah, it's it's entirely surprising. Uh, I just wanted to to say one thing, um, so maybe just taking a step back uh, to, to the earlier conversation we were having, which is, because uh, I think it, it, it relates to this point as well, which is that, you know, this is a, another good example of how the um the 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 invention of new categories and new ways of thinking about things, you know, creates these blind spots, right? Just, which is you know a big part of your argument, and I think that's true both in terms of you know we talked about it in terms of both the experience, right? Now people experience trauma because that's a category of experience. If it's not a category of experience, you may experience something, but it's not necessarily trauma. But this also affects us as researchers as well, right? Which is, I think, a, a big part of the point. And I think this is a really good illustration of kind of how that happened in the creation of the book um, and in putting that together.
0: Yeah. And and especially, sorry, if I can jump in, like, especially with stuff like this, when this is so emotionally, you know, you, ex- you experience it in such an emotionally almost paralyzing way right you you it really leads you away from any kind of like rational you know, you expect that you know people react in a certain way because it's how you react right when you read accounts of of you know of death and suffering I and mean, it just it's the emotion as the, you as a researcher right it, it's really throw you throw you out in a way I think it's much it's in a way it's, it's the nature of material kind of explain why a lot of people you know feel like this that th- there's no way there's they're kind of like they're going to be they do kind of disservice to the victims in a way by by not thinking about it as trauma and as suffering in a way we do
1: yeah So we've been talking very much about um, sort of the first set of arguments that the book is making, Um, and I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the second set, which you've alluded to, um, and that's talking about these sort of questions of objectivity and advocacy, um, care and inequity that are part of the, uh, the, the, both the experience of bombing and of being bombed and of then researching both sort of primary research the kind of things we were talking about with the clipboards and all and then you know thinking about it later so you have you you lay out a second set of arguments that really relates to that part of it um could you go through that uh that part of the book for us just a little bit here before we jump into some of the chapters
0: yeah of course so the the nature uh and, and and thank you for uh for, for reading so carefully and like finding exactly finding even better than me like <laughs> the, the categorization of the arguments that I was making there um yeah so so the first one is about again kind of trauma and, and the nuclear storm. then like you have a couple of others that connected to uh, power relationship I think this is the best way to 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 think that because um as the scene in Hiroshima um uh, demonstrate the relationship between uh, Japanese and Americans was not an equal playing field. Yet when the Americans um, come to to Japan, they pretend as if uh, we are on the same field uh, of you know objective science, where we all just care for the truth and all use those universal categories and so on and so on. And the Japanese have displayed this game, right? So um, and this is uh, there's many reasons to this. A lot of the reaction to both an the American side is actually progressive almost, I'm kind of hesitant to say, uh, anti-racist, again, using contemporary terms, but a reaction to the use of racial categories uh, and quasi-racial categories in the psychological research on Japanese during the war. So this is part of Ruth Benedict's work and others. There is a whole school of uh, psychological science that tried to categorize the Japanese mind during the war which uh, basically justified was finny cloak racism, right? Japanese as little children, erotic, uh, passive aggressive, and so on and so on. Uh, There is some, we can go to it later on, but the the people who are writing the surveys and doing the research, actually are the people who are reacting against us, right? Uh, and, And they say the Japanese are people just like us. So on the face of it, this is liberal, this is progressive, this allows for uh, collaboration, but the nature of objectivity, especially for researchers from of this pretense for objectivity, and and you no know, uh, Miriam uh, Kingsbury uh, this. I mean, she did really good job about this with her work on on anthropologists, right? It creates some blind spots, and the biggest blind spot is here. Uh, there are two biggest masses. One. It's very hard in the case of the symptoms we look at to make the causal collection between what happened during the war and symptoms that happened afterwards. And especially uh, when you talk about stuff about uh, nuclear issues, because there's the role of radiation, no one knows about it. And it's very hard to do cause and effect. I mean, do people suffer particular mental issues before because of radiation? Because of what happened during the bombing, because of privation after the war, because of the collapse or the value system after defeat, and so on. If you objectivity can be a very good way to dismiss this, right? Right. If and this would happen both in Hiroshima and also in the Holocaust case. In the Holocaust case, you have German researchers looking at Jewish survivors and say, Look, the guy was uh, had mental issues before the war. He said mental issues now. Uh, there's no reason, objectively, to say that the war and the camps and Auschwitz are definitely to do this, right? And uh, Dagmar Herzog and many other people uh, did very good work on to show how German researchers used the category of objectivity to deny patient suffering. And, the, and in here, you have it uh, also, you have the same kind of operation. Uh, not out of malice, but uh, in many ways, but also just because people, um, Japanese researchers want to integrate itself into this world of objective universal science and want to look at at uh, patient suffering objective, objectively. So the role of objectivity is, is one thing, right? And this also leads to another issue of blind spot, which is the, the lack of transcultural psychology. Something I expected to find was the Japanese would think look at and think about trauma as because the same way you can think about trauma through time uh you can also think through cultures right different cultures react differently to disaster and um i'm expecting japanese researchers to be much more sensitive to this but i couldn't find anything about this right there is work at the time uh harry wu uh, did really good work on transcultural psychology in in the who People are doing at the time. It's not that it doesn't exist, but Japanese don't do that. Why? Again, objectivity, power relations. Uh, and in Japanese case, also reaction to Japanese psychology and psychiatry during the war. We talk about Yamato Damashi and we Japanese cannot have uh, shell shock because we have a uh, superior Yamato spirit and so on and so on, right? The last set of uh, blind spots uh, is gender. That's like power relationship is gender. And I argued that... And this is a point made much better than me by Yumi Kim. I did, I wish I read her book, uh, which just just won the Fairbank Prize, right? Uh, medicine, of family, uh, that psychiatric care was gendered in Japan, um, and we kind of made the argument at the same time, uh, which um, which is kind of uh, it's kind of it's kind of neat. <laughs> I, I like it that you know kind of same same ideas are kind of. If you look at the at what happened. In those years research was done by men right but care was done by women right uh that even though you know women are not part of the psychiatric psychology war world right they're still the one who are dealing with the day-to-day right either at the home and this is what uh yumi kim already is saying right menace in the family talks about at home um in the community, or in this case, the people I did look at are social social um, social workers, um, which is a complete female world, uh, not complete, but 9% female world, where while psychologists, psychiatrists, and institutions didn't give any solutions to those people, the people who had to deal with their, their life are women social workers, mostly young, 99% Japanese, a lot of them survived themselves, that had to deal with the care. Um, so this is like the the last the last set of arguments to put it about how the, but a lot of what we know about the way people experience is through um, female care. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about
1: everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a
0: thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless how to get 30 30 bet you get 30 bet you get 20 20 20 bet you get 20 20 bet you get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so
1: give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promo rate for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
0: families have a lot going on
1: Yeah. So I was thinking about um, the the sort of question of scientific you know, objectivity, because as you know, I'm sort of working on a STS kind of project myself. And I've been thinking a lot about the the problem of the kind of messiness of science in the real world. And psychiatry is a great example of that. And of course, I'm working with nutrition science, which very often has the same kind of problem to a different extent and in a different way, but the, the same kind of problem of you don't have the sort of Karl Popper model of it's either falsifiable or it's not we can do an ab experiment and that's the only even though that is what counts for science with a capital s that you're never going to actually get that and then how you know what is what does it mean to deviate from that model what is it you know and can you be taken seriously if you don't have an ab lab experiment if you don't have something that's falsifiable in that way and i think that you know when science is happening on the ground as it obviously is in your case that that's you know a, a really interesting problem that i think all science has um, but especially when it's happening on the ground uh, as it was uh, for all of the characters who are involved in your book and i thought it was again really interesting that not only do you have that element but then you also have the separate problem of um these gendered uh domains of what counts as science and then what counts as, well, care obviously can't be science, even if you could scientize care, which is a whole separate sort of <laughs> yeah. know, set of issues. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I want to uh, I want to make sure we have plenty of time to, to talk about the the chapters of the book, um, which are roughly divided into two parts um, and the first half. Roughly of the book focuses on the developments in the US um, in and around psychology and psychiatry, up to the time of Lifton's visit to Hiroshima and his meeting with uh Kubo in 1962. And the second part shifts mostly to the developments uh, in Japan. Uh, and so I want to ask you about it's a little bit of a long passage, and, and I'm going to quote it here, but I want to ask you to sort of unpack this um, passage in the book, which to me is kind of the crux. So you're commenting on Lifton's assertion that, quote, no one had attempted a comprehensive psychological study of what had occurred in Hiroshima prior to 1962. And in response to that, you write, and I'm just, this is, here's that long passage, Lifton was not simply uninformed. It's easy to see why he saw the 17 years prior to the 1962 meeting as a gap in research. Lifton's focus and political sensitivities were fundamentally different from those of most who had come before him. While his research focused on the victims and the long-term psychological damage they suffered, almost all the research examined in this book has looked beyond the victims and their psychological suffering. Most researchers, even sympathetic ones like Kubel, saw the hibaksha, the victims, so to speak, the survivors, as a resource. So like I said, I mean, to me, this is kind of the the crux of the book. And I want to use this as a way to talk about the two halves of the book, starting with part one. Um, so can you tell us sort of how we get to this point, right? What are the American studies uh, of the atom bombs like from 1945 to 1962? And what does that mean, especially in the context of this passage?
0: Yeah, Thank you. That's a very important passage. We should just uh, come, come back to um, um, now thinking, uh, you know, Lifton just said a very large uh very long just this week a very long interview in a new yorker um and um i i after reading us i started thinking and also because of the interview i started thinking about about this in the passage and the importance of lifton and as someone who is really a, an intellectual giant and someone who's so important in the history uh yet that i i wouldn't say condemn but like it's really hard to you know his role is very complex right i mean and why he he kind of dismisses everything that came before him and the other hand right he really cared for the victims and i really tried to think during writing and research about his role here and i think the main problem as you say, as as i say is that like who's in the center of your research and roughly speaking um in the first part of the center of the research is not the victims themselves but um in the american part american the americans are uh, future american victim uh well not victim future hypothetical american victims of the bomb right and in the second part is the japanese victims themselves right so this is roughly how you can uh, you can look at the book in the first part what you have is the ussbs researchers and people who came out of it right so Basically, it look at uh, psychiatrist uh, Alexander Layton. There's probably one person. You know, you also notice all of them are men until I get to the last part when I talk about social workers. But uh, there's Alexander Layton is an American psychiatrist, and I look at Irving Janis, who is an American psychologist, um, and, and I look at the Abruptuschel, my Canadian psychiatrist. I look at all those men that dealt with with uh, dealt with nuclear research. And what i see that they think about hiroshima is a way to think about what's going to happen in america now that the cold war is starting and how can we can utilize the experience in hiroshima in order to either prevent the next war or prevent our people to suffer what people in hiroshima suffered right which is not a bad thing but it kind of leaves hiroshima behind what kind of amazed me, and this is also why I couldn't find stuff about Hibakusha. That those people, most of them, after the first round of of research in 1945, no one comes back to Hiroshima. Really, no one comes back. No one, no one go and do research in Hiroshima. But they all use this initial research and uh, various other things, like the work of John Hersey and and, and others, uh, other testimonies that came out of there, uh, to think about how the next war is going to look like. A lot of those people, not a lot. All of them are military men. All of them are connected to the military-industrial complex, military-academic complex. Oh, right. Uh, you know, Irving Giants worked for the Run Corporation. Layton, who uh, was in Columbia and Harvard later on, he actually comes from an internment camps. Internment camps, a whole other story here uh, uh, that we can go into. But it's this is basically the prehistory of is prehistory. like Layton. And the Japanese American researchers that were in Hiroshima, we're going to talk about in the second part, uh, came from the camps. And they think about the Bakshia experience, again, as a way to prevent what happened. So on one hand, you have peace activists, people who think about it as, as on a social level, right? And then on the other hand, you have people think about the individual level, but not think about how to heal the trauma of the survivors, but how to prevent the trauma. And here a person named Irving Janis, was uh was kind of fascinating fascinating work especially if you think go back to our conversation about trauma before he think people can be immune immunized again this is kind of mind-blowing for for us if you think about it he is devising theories um on how to expose people to low level what we now call trauma traumatic experiences in order for them when the time comes and a bomb is dropped on the U.S., people will be immune from trauma. And his theories, in part, were responsible for the fact that the U.S. sent tens of thousands of soldiers with teams of psychologists from John Hopkins and American, uh, I think it's an American University in D.C., um, to to monitor their psychological behavior and see if they are immune by this test to, to trauma and giving them radiation poisoning and god knows what what else right and and we don't know because they didn't again didn't look about it look for it right uh in order to immune from trauma so this is you know again a completely different mindset which you don't expect to find this is the first part the second part which we can uh, talk in more detail a bit I guess later is about people who were on the ground people who did care for um did care uh literally (laughs) either cared for research or put for for victims put victims uh, in a center of their study. And this is the Japanese researchers, Kubei Shitoshi and Konuma Masao from Hiroshima University, and Japanese American sociologist who is in a much more complex situation. Uh, Matsumoto, uh, Scotty Matsumoto, a Japanese American, who was a medical sociologist who was in, in Hiroshima in an American institution called the ABCC, an American uh, the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission whose job is to work with survivors and make sure that they will come and cooperate with American research so he has a very complex kind of position here uh, and it's very complex and fascinating character but he, he's he's in the second part he's the Hiroshima part even though he's American right uh, but because he's Japanese American he and he's on the ground this is why he's he's in a second part there.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I was thinking uh, as you were talking. This was something that I kind of had in the back of my mind when I was reading the book, but it crystallized for me now that there's a kind of um, effective altruism vibe to the way that the uh, Americans are treating uh, the uh, aftermath, uh, shall we say, of the bombings, right? Which is that um, the greatest good can be done by thinking about an indeterminate future situation in which you know infinite number of peoples could possibly live in the future we have to be future oriented in that sense and what has happened in the past and what is happening on the ground now is um again you know not the objective way to prioritize where actual good could be done and i think there's a there's a little bit of like um of that that kind of vibe of convincing yourself that the reason that you're not Com- that you're not taking a direct look at what's happening right in front of you and what's ha- you know, and the in that sense suffering or or whatever you know whatever category you want to put it in, um, uh, the 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 experience of the people who have lived through the bombing, um, the 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 reason you can excuse yourself from looking at that is because you have a future to plan for and that's the objectively good and right thing to do. Uh, and so I thought it was just, we're living in this sort of weird, you know, effective altruism moment. And I, and I was kind of feeling that same general sort of vibe. Um, although, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the American military are effective altruists. Uh, Yeah, to be and, clear. and I think
0: it's, the problem is even deeper. It's not that they even excuse uh, themselves from not looking because they're not even aware they're not looking. And this is denial. This is like very, very important uh, part of it. I have a whole paper on denial that I wrote um, on the concept of denial. It's not the now, but them, like, even though it did happen, denying suffering, it did happen in the ABCC and other places. It's just they, they aren't able to see the Japanese sufferers. Oh, yeah, a, I, that's completely
1: yeah. what I mean. I think it's I think it's an unconscious thing, right? Where yeah, you're, yeah. You're, oh, yeah. you're, you're, of course, yeah, it's not yeah. it's not a, a, a clear and obvious conscious decision to say, oh, well, I don't have to look at these people. It's just that they don't even register because your priorities are so far in so a different far. direction, yeah. which is obviously objective and noble and good. And, you know, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, that's
0: the other thing. All those people, they're the good guys. Right. I mean, we're looking at people. I mean, most of them not. Those who work for the military, a lot of them, but but a lot of them are the good guys, people who really cared, right? People, people who cared, people who wanted to help. Uh, but th- the result of their action was was neglect of, of the survivors.
1: Right. Um, so I want to uh talk about the the second half. And in particular, you've brought up some of these very strong and interesting personalities that populate the second half of your book. So you have uh Scott Matsumoto of the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. You have Konuma Masaho, uh, who's a psychiatrist. And then you have Kubo Yoshitoshi, who's the one who meets with Lifton, uh, the psychologist. Uh, for listeners who are interested in the personalities, read the book. Uh, for reasons of of length uh, and you know, to stay a little bit concise here, um, I want to focus on how those three people represent different approaches to Thinking about and dealing with the aftermath and after effects of the atomic bombing, how they overlap, how how they diverge, um, because I think this is really the, the 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 point that you're trying to get across by having um, a, a chapter that relatively focuses on each of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would love to talk about kunumasao uh, Shunga collection <laughs> that I found in the archives, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that was one of those archive moments <laughs> when you look at all this porn that a guy had. Uh, well respectful but still uh so all those people right they're all in hiroshima hiroshima is a small city at a time uh they all know each other they all met each other the uh uh, matsumoto and uh, and and kunuma are friends uh they meet for drinks and coffee uh kubo work work with uh, both of them um and all of them are part of this nexus where you have American researchers and American research facilities on one hand, and you have the American, the Japanese researchers. On the other hand, then you have the survivors, the organizations, you have care workers, you have a whole bunch of people who are, who are concerned with the survivors uh, in Hiroshima, right? Uh, and they all have competing interests. And this game of, of interest and his game, this is really kind of what drives research uh, in all sorts of directions. Um, Matsumoto is perhaps the best example of this. Um, so his job is not to care again, not because he doesn't care, but because it's not his job This uh, and he's in a very precarious position. His job is not to research the survivors uh, per se, but to make sure that they cooperate with the American research and are coming uh up to Hijama, up to the hill where the where the committee is uh, and to get tested this is because of the nature of american research which is focused mostly on radiation research uh that's another thing whether psychiatry they're mostly biologists and uh, um, geneticists and the like um but part of his job is to kind of assess their their mental health right uh he doesn't do it per se. The people who do the work on, on on the ground and talk to most of the social workers. One thing that he does do uh, is to create a social medical social worker plan, uh, which was really at the time one of the first, the biggest uh, sustained uh, trial and helping survivors deal with with the social impact and the mental impact of of, of the bomb. Uh, but again, those people are also in a precarious position. Both uh, Matsumoto, being a Japanese American researcher in a mostly white white uh, institute um, in the fifties, right, uh, and the women workers that work with him, they're in this position where they it's hard for them to uh, to to acknowledge survivor suffering uh, in a way that we would expect them to. And whether they did or not, again, it's an open question again, because we're blinded by, by as we said before, by our own cutters what they should do. And I don't want to condemn them or anyone here for failing to see that. Again, this is me being the historian, right? They weren't, they just saw what their position conditioned to, right? So Matsumoto really is concerned with bringing them in rather than healing them. Um, Kodama Aki, the main social worker I'm looking at, uh, Japanese survivors herself, have this like uh, kind of, uh, how do you say it, like, uh, I don't know, I just, the word escape from English, tough motherhood, like tough, uh, tough love, right? Attitude towards survivors. Like, you really have to think about your position, lift yourself up and like, you know, you shouldn't really be whining about the bomb. The bomb was all, you no, know, like stuff like this, you know, get a job. <laughs> She, she's she's being really on the face of it almost almost cruel to, to people right but but she see it as you say altruism right she see it as a way to help them uh but also because her job is to get them out of the house and into the research Institute um and um and and this this is kind of one set of people right and then you have a uh, Kunuma who is not active politically who's not active socially unlike Kubo uh he cared for the science and in here, I, I argue he's much more cons- affected by the German tradition of medicine that is very hostile to psychology. He keeps looking for somatic explanation. He's also coming from the military, and Japanese military was notoriously hostile uh, to to psychiatric and psychological explanation of suffering. Uh, Nakamura Eddy did a really good job on this. Um, um he just again he can't see it he 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 looks for it. he doesn't look for for suffering the way we look for it right he's looking for like brain lesion and head trauma and stuff like this and then the third person published Toshi um he's concerned with survivors uh as and again he's concerned with survivors per se that as a way to promote Agenda of peace and reconciliation with the U.S. and anti-nuclear later on. So he concerned about their voices in order people to hear their voices that they tell their stories. Interestingly, not they telling the story but telling them through the prism of science, of his prism, objective prism, in order to impact public opinion in Japan and America to promote peace. So eventually, I mean, Kunum is a little bit more um, a little bit more complicated. Basically, for all those people, you know. Eventually, even though they put the, the victims in the center, eventually the end result is of what they do is again to look beyond their victims, right? To the peace movement, to science, to the American research institution and needs, um, and and eventually, just like with the first, uh, the first uh, people in the first part, they, they look beyond the victims also.
1: Yeah, and I think this is um, just to, to echo you know, part of what you said earlier was that uh they were the 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 victims the survivors the hibaksha were resources uh for each of these people with their different uh agendas right and that was in some ways the thing that they all agreed on was that the hibaksha were resources um and and so i think it's interesting this you know this leads us nicely segues us nicely into the final chapter where we go from this kind of conjuncture uh, around 1960 you know the first 15 20-ish years uh of um dealing with in various ways the aftermath of the atomic bombings um in your final chapter you take us from that point Uh, you know, further into the future uh, in your prehistory of PTSD, explaining how we get from 1962 to this current understanding of trauma and the inclusion of PTSD in both the popular and the medical lexicon. So how does that post-1962 history diverge from the way that scientists, uh, you know, Kubel Konama. all these people saw their mission vis-a-vis the bombs, um, vis-a-vis the hibakusha, and vis-a-vis society or their individual disciplines, etc.
0: Okay, so uh, before I get to post-62, I just want to also mention that uh, in the last chapters uh, that I mentioned, there's another component that uh, I have, which kind of built on what I did in my first book, which is to look beyond Japan and America. as one thing that... uh, you know, this kind of something happening in our field with people at least are trained in the US as a matter of language. Mostly look at Japan and America, right? And I wasn't happy with this. Uh, I have other languages, I'm have other tra- other. i training other things. I want to go beyond that, right? And I want to see if something, yeah, anything that happened in Hiroshima is exceptional, and it's not, right? Uh, if you look at the research done on Holocaust survivors, if you look at the research done on war veterans, uh, in Germany, in Israel, uh, in the UK, they're the victim of the Blitz, right? Um, all the people we talked about so far, they were completely within the international consensus, right? The difference um, is that you had people who stood up in the Holocaust context and Vietnam War veteran context. And this is where Lifton came in because he was part of the generation, right? people stood up for their patient rights. There was a move in the sixties that coming from anti-nuclear movement, uh, physicians for physicians, for, um, um, uh, social responsibility, uh, I forgot the name of them, like a physicians organization, doctor's organization, uh, that work for peace and they come from a different sensitivity and they look at the victims and put it in a center and it starts in a Holocaust context lift Lifton kind of bring it with him to Hiroshima and take it with him. And this is people who stand for patient right and stand and also see connection between different places right connection between victims of war victim of domestic violence, right victims of racial um, racially uh, this is a civil war right era right uh, victim of racial violence um, the 60s moment when people see the connections. Uh, which eventually to PTSD and Plifton is very important. He's not the only one by any means. There are so many other people involved, um, but he's important in bringing Hiroshima into the story. So you have his divergence. Well, in post-1962 in the West, right? Largely speaking, right? I mostly mean the US and Europe, but uh, there is the entrance of what we eventually will call PTSD, right? If you look at the reaction to, to, to Lifton's work on Hiroshima, to work on Holocaust or work with Vietnam veterans, Lifton was very important in work with Vietnam veterans, uh, you have eventually PTSD. In Japan, what you have is a more of a continuation, but on a different register. So in Japan, where I look, if I look, uh, and I took the Lifton as a catalyst, it's kind of like present in the book, but it's not really. I mean, he's, 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 his, his presence is there, but it, his research is not It's not really dealt with. It's more about how people reacted to. Um, so you have the rise of a social worker movement. And this is, again, chapter where I look the most at uh, female social workers. Um, really, people do amazing work with survivors. Uh, but in this case, also, they the first time politicize their work right and connect testimony with uh testimony with care right and the way it's connected through uh sociologists like uh, Ishida Tadashi and others is that they want they they think and this is again a very different way to think about it right but it's kind of built and lived on lifton, it's a little bit more complex is by people by telling their story and this is a very western idea right if you talk about it right you'll feel better it's it's a very kind of confession this confessional idea right which ptsd can relate to the ptsd treatment to, right if you become a witness you can overcome your suffering and they're urging people to struggle against the bomb and struggle against the mental price of the bomb they don't really talk about this but the, the, eventually what happened is that they kind of categorize people as survivors versus victim not because they have any kind of malice right but this is the result of what they do so PTSD, is um, the there's a very negative reaction to, to Lifton because they think PTSD means that people are kind of stuck with with, with this you know and they there's a very unfortunate um mistranslation of Lifton's book uh it's called death in life um that kind of um I don't remember the exact phrase I mean it's in the book uh that kind of leave the impression that Lifton argued that the death is complete that survivors cannot overcome their suffering. It's always they're always dead inside walking zombies, right? And survivor and care workers and activists are really, really angry about this. I mean not all of them but the people who there's some were very grateful for Lifton. Um, and this lead this kind of leads into this idea that and Ishida is very important Like the, that the way for survivors to deal with mental suffering is to bear witness. But the result is a reaction that reject PTSD and the work that led to PTSD uh, and emphasize instead the political work of struggle and bearing witness, which leads to dividing the survivors into basically survivors and victims, right? People who overcome their suffering and people who were um who were just still kind of lost because they didn't find a cause and you know as far as i could tell people who you know there are people who you know i wouldn't say heal but they they made sense of their suffering through witnessing right and there was but i i i think i mean again i would not my value <laughs> yeah, it's not again it's like role of historians like it's our job to condemn them i mean now as we're talking i can tell that i think i i didn't see it as a very positive way to look at this um that just some people are better than others because they managed to do this overcoming but again we have to be very careful when they look at us because for them they were very dedicated They're still very dedicated to this uh this idea and the way i think about this
1: yeah and i think also this uh touches on a conversation that you and i have have had in the past about thinking about the uh, you know how we do history in terms of who leaves behind their voices right you know, what what sources do we have as historians and and i'm clearly in that um you know very uh, uh overgeneralized dichotomy that you were just talking about between you know the survivor versus victim um the survivor engaged in finding purpose, engaged in political struggle, et cetera, is going to be the person who leaves behind their voice for us to uh, analyze as historians, whereas the so-called victim very often um, is left out of that. And I think that's also part of, you know, this overall problem of the kind of value judgments that history, if not historians, end up passing on the objects of our our research um, for reasons that are, you know, in, in some ways um depressingly beyond our control but at the same time we ought to have a little bit more control over
0: yeah yeah and we, we should be aware again of of the stakes but then again i mean i opened the book and this is i struggle with as you say, we struggle with all the time like whose voices we include i mean do we put our value judgment in, into into this and say this should be included and this shouldn't i mean there's two problems here one the issue of value judgment right like I opened the book with this quote from uh, Israel military historian that said something about I'll read it. <laughs> I just like it so much. It, it says something uh, that you know you shouldn't judge your subject. You know they're not stupid, smart, brave, or cowardly. They are human. Their decisions are influenced by many factors, which often they were not conscious of. Historians have no monopoly on the truth, but as long as he says he, but you know can trust that uh, he or she is honest in his work, and and he or she uh, are aware that not a few pieces are missing in the puzzle. Uh, their writing and exposés might be of some value. And, and I really and really like, this is from Amir Amazov, I really like the way he put it. Uh, we don't have an monopoly on truth. We have a very partial view of the resources we have. They're, as you said, biased by who left sources who didn't, right? And there's the second problem here, the silence part, right? How do you, this, I end the book with another quote that talks about this, right? It's from Kenzebu uh, Hiroshima notes. Not. Um, uh, Ibakshi said that we don't want to talk. We want to be silent. How do you give voice to people who don't want to talk? Right you now, a lot of hist- history in the last 30, 40 years was and still is moved by the idea of to give voice to the voiceless, which is, of course, I I, I have no, no problem with this whatsoever. This is, I mean, this is what also I try to do here to a large extent. But what do you do people who don't want to voice? Or how do you how do you, how do you research silence? Right. Yeah, and
1: methodologically uh... that's uh that's a conversation we're going to still still be having. Uh, yeah, even if even if we agree on the sort of uh, the agenda. Uh, yeah, as you say, so I think this is a nice place to to wrap up talking about the book um, and talk a little bit about I understand you've been cleansing your palate with a different book project recently, uh, and I want to know what else is uh, on your plate. Uh, so what have you been up to other than uh, this uh, collaborative book project that I think you've just completed, if I'm I not just mistaken? just finished
0: a book with uh, Mahon Murphy in Kyoto University on punk in Kyoto. Uh, I tend to jump around from things that are very depressing to people, things that are less depressing. So I wrote the Castle book after the first Hiroshima book. Now, uh, Ian Mahon wrote a book about the uh, punk in Kyoto. It's a short book. Uh, uh, it's done for the 33 and the third uh, series. It's edited by Manabe, Noriko Manabe in, uh, in, in, about music um, in Japan. Um, so this is something we just did. It's about punk in Kyoto. It, it looks at uh, one place, the Seibukodo. is a, a legendary place in Kyoto University, which was still is occupied by the student movement and is kind of a venue for all sorts of theater and music. And in our case, punk. We looked at uh, you know, utilizing our other identities as people are very much involved with the punk scene. Um knows more than me. Um, in Kyoto uh, to look look at this. So after finishing this, of course, I have to go back to something very depressing and now what I work in now also with a colleague, Susanna Dujubian, who is an expert on uh, human remains and the fate of human remains uh, after the Holocaust. Uh, I found, again, in my first book, I found a couple of uh, instances where you have um, doxable urns uh, full of uh, human remains. from Auschwitz uh, uh, in in Hiroshima, in Kyoto, in Nagasaki, in Fukushima, and all sorts of places. And um, which led me to the question, what the you know, what are we doing here? Right. So I started looking at that and I kind of partnered with Susanna who's who's very who looked at the Polish side and worked on it for, for, for quite a while. And we realized this is a worldwide phenomenon. So we're looking at now at like the global circulation of those urns. And more generally speaking, at least from my side the idea of like human remains after after disaster so also look at human remains in the context of colonialism like i know okinawa um uh, the human remains in hiroshima nagasaki uh, the collection of bones so this is basically what we're kind of into right now again depressing them yeah, so <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, we, hopefully we will uh, get you back for both the less depressing and the more depressing book projects in the future. Uh, but for now, thanks for uh, spending the time with us uh, again on the other side of the microphone, if you will. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thank you. A pleasure for me. Really enjoyed it.